0: Do you think Rishi Sunak has read Donut Economics?
1: I would be very surprised if Rishi Sunak had read it, but maybe that's my policy. Maybe I'll go and deliver (laughs) him a copy.
0: (laughs) With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope, and I'm your host for season five of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests, and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Today's guest is the UK's first Green MP, Caroline Lucas. Caroline was first elected as Member of Parliament for Brighton Pavilion in 2010. She served as leader of the Green Party of England and Wales from 2008 to 2012 and co-leader from 2016 to 2018. She is unsurprisingly involved as a passionate campaigner across a wide range of subjects, which sees her working with animal charities, theatres, environmental networks, women's groups, and children's organisations, to name just a few. She's also written a book, Honourable Friends, which details her first parliamentary term as a fresh, green voice to the House of Commons. We are so delighted that you've made the time to speak to us about your favourite books. Welcome
1: to the podcast, Caroline. Well, um, the excitement is all mine. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been such such a a lovely thing to be able to start thinking about. Do, Do you get the time to
0: read as much as you'd like?
1: Not as much as I would like and not as much fiction as I would like. I mean, there's just so much to be read in the areas that I work on, whether that's environment or climate or nature. So a lot of my reading is around around some of those things. So making a space for fiction, making a space for poetry is always a bit of a battle. But I just love reading. It's always been part of my life. Um, yeah, I books, books are just all around the house. Can't can't move without stumbling over them, so it's really important. <laughs> Join the club! <laughs> Join the club, Caroline, stumbling over books. Um,
0: I actually am so glad that you mentioned poetry there because I've seen that you have brought a collection of poems for your bookshelf-y. Um Is that something that you've always been into, something that you've always found, I
1: guess, a solace and a joy in? I really have, and, and I would... Um put a lot of it to my friend at school, Rachel Nichols, who was um, such an amazing school friend. And when we were like, 13 and 14, we were supposed to be doing music practice and she would always spirit up books to the music practice rooms and we would um, sort of creep along the corridors and and sit together and I'm afraid I'm still rubbish at the violin but I do know (laughs) a lot more poetry than I would have done if I hadn't had that experience and um, she came from a fantastically literary family and so reading Emily Dickinson for example for the first time I just still remember just the just the amazement, just the excitement. Of reading Emily Dickinson or one of my favourites, Emily Bronte, I love, Thomas Hardy. Um, yeah, as a teenager, they were absolutely my my go to places for for solace and comfort and and joy really.
0: Were you from a literary family?
1: Not at all. There was hardly a book in our in our home, which right. I think is why I've kind of the other extreme. I remember going to the um, Second Bookshop at Hay-on-Wye for the first time and I came away more or less with a kind of a wheelbarrow full of full of books because I was just so gobsmacked by seeing so many books in one place at one time. So um, no it didn't come from home but it certainly came from friends.
0: Oh what a magical feeling though. If you If you weren't necessarily surrounded by books then being in a place where you were it's honestly, transcendental, like it's an incredible sensation. Um, you also, of course, put pen to paper yourself. Uh, you've written your own book. Tell me about that. How, how was it for you?
1: Well, I just felt that it was such an extraordinary privilege to be the first Green in Parliament that I kind of wanted to document what it felt like. And um, I was just looking back at the book uh, just last night. And so it was written um, and published in 2015. So, so a little way ago now. But but that sense of, of turning up at this extraordinary parliament that just didn't seem to make any sense at all in terms of how it worked or how it didn't work and it doesn't work. And um, uh, understanding, actually, that it's almost in the interests of the party whips, the other party whips, to keep MPs in a degree of of darkness about what's going on because that way they can be manipulated more easily. Um, so I, I just wanted to kind of capture what it felt like, um, some of the battles trying to get green ideas accepted, and and, and just record that for history. So it's it's very much a kind of a book that was written, you know, on on train journeys back to Brighton, on bits of paper, on emails, and then sort of pulled together. Um, So it's not the most polished work, but I hope it does give the sense of kind of what it felt like to be at the coalface for the first time on your own and not having any kind of tradition of of having Green Party MPs in Parliament. So there's no one to tell you what to do um, and just trying to work it out for yourself and, and just the strength of my fantastic team around me too, which, which kind of made it all possible.
0: Well, we're going to talk about the books that have shaped you that have no doubt... Contributed to that project as well to those moments that you were sitting on trains, scribbling um, notes down, and that working alongside you, doing your day to day job. Um, and your first book, Shelfie Book, is "Fighting for Hope" by Petra Kelly. Petra Kelly was one of the co-founders of the German Green Party, and in this book, written in 1984, she presents her political ideas and suggestions for women working in politics to work compassionately with love
1: peace and civility. Tell us about how this book influenced you. Well, um, it's a source of such sorrow to me that many people probably won't have heard of Petra Kelly because she really was such a... A a star of of, of green politics. And for me, starting off in in green politics in the late 80s, um, knowing that Petra Kelly was there, seeing the fantastic work she did, just her extraordinary intellect, her um, energy and honesty and vision, her uncompromisingness, um, and just the way she kind of stood for life. I, I have a precious photograph of her entering the Bundestag, the the German parliament for the first time, she's wearing jeans, she's carrying armfuls of of sunflowers and she just kind of symbolises life among all of these kind of grey suits. And it was at the time, those early 80s when she wrote the book, where where the threat of nuclear war seemed very, very present, very real. There were lots of films about it at the time, lots of people talking about it then, just as people talk about climate change now. And so that sense of, of being on the side of life, um, being kind of linked to things like Greenham Common. It it just felt truly inspirational. And I loved the way she talked about the Green Party. And I wondered if I could just read out a sentence because it kind of sums up for me what the Green Party is about. And I put it at the the preface of my own book. Um, She called the Green Party the anti-party party. In other words, a party that's not part of the system. And she said this, We can no longer rely on the established parties, nor can we go on working through extra parliamentary channels. There's a need for a new force, both in Parliament and outside it. And while an element of this new force is represented by the anti-party party, party, the Greens, it's become increasingly important to vote for what one believes to be right on the basis of content, rather than wasting one's vote on lesser evils. I I just think that's perfect. And it's as true now as, as it ever was. She, she she was a huge inspiration to me and and her book this fighting for hope you know we talk about the personal being political but for petra kelly i think that was you know that was a, something that she absolutely took to heart and, and and the book is a very very personal manifesto of her involvement in politics what mattered to her everything from economics through to nuclear through to pesticides through to through to love actually so yeah i think it's a really important book how did you become Politicised. I mean, did
0: you grow up in a political or um, liberal family household? Would your would your childhood friends be surprised at where you are now?
1: I think probably they they would. Um, so no, it wasn't a political family at all. And to the extent it was political, it was it was more right wing. I mean, it was a Daily Mail reading household. Okay. But um, you know, it was through the friends that I met, and I come back to this friend, Rachel Nichols, who, who, who really was transformative for me and just opened my eyes to so much. And, um, and so I think I became politicized when I was at university. It was a sort of time of the Falklands War and Thatcher and all of the um, the horrendous things that happened at that time. But actually, the thing that got me to join the Green Party, the kind of light bulb moment, was another book. <laughs> Interestingly, it was a book by Jonathan Porritt called Seeing Green, that he wrote in um, uh, in 86, I think. Um, No, 84, and I read it in 86, that's right. Um, Seeing Green basically was a a book about all of the different kind of symptoms of what's going wrong, whether that's environmental degradation or nuclear weapons or the patriarchy and the discrimination against women and and against uh, different groups. And what he did in that book was to bring them all together, all of those issues, and demonstrate how... Um, there is a political solution that goes to the causes of all of that. And so that book I read, um, I happened to be in London at the time doing research um, on, on the PhD I was writing. And and I read the book and and I was in a really miserable bed sitting in Clapham and I turned the book over and saw that the Green Party was based in the Clapham High Road, which kind of seemed like a sign to me that I was meant to go and, and join up straight away. So I marched <laughs> up and down the Clapham High Road looking for... What I fondly imagined would be the huge offices with a big brass plaque mm. saying Green Party. <laughs> I found this tiny little room behind a laundry, which was the Green Party office. So I signed up there and then.
0: I can only imagine. You mentioned that image of Petra Kelly um, with her sunflowers amongst this sea of grey suits. I'm sure this is a question that you're asked all the time, but... How difficult is it to be a woman in politics, which is, of course, a traditionally male world? And for me, that conjures an image of a sea of grey suits.
1: <laughs> I mean, I have to say that it's an awful lot easier now than it was when, you know, some of the real pioneers were were going into Parliament for the first time. When you hear, for example, someone like Harriet Harman talking about her experience in Parliament, you realise that we've come an awful long way. So I think in Westminster now we're about 35% of, of MPs are women. So we're still a long way off 50-50, but I think it's probably the highest percentage that there's been so far. Um, but it is harder. I mean, I, I came from the European Parliament. I had 10 years in the European Parliament where it was pretty much 50-50 and where y- your, your your gender was never even a, a thing you ever thought about because it, you know there was just such a, a mix and a diversity of people. Um, and so coming from that very diverse European Parliament to Westminster was, was quite a shock. And it did seem extraordinarily white and extraordinarily male. And that, you know, so many things were just done because that was the way they'd already always been done. Um, <clears throat> even something as simple as, you know, I was writing a, a private member's bill and I and I wanted to put in it... Uh, at at least the two pronouns he or she if not three and everything had to be in the pronoun he and I was just had this real battle with the clerk saying this makes no sense we're in the 21st century come on and so that just felt like there's battle after battle and so if you're not careful you get so diverted by by process battles that your, your eye loses the ball of the of the main thing you're trying to change. And there is still some way to go, but we're getting there.
0: We'll move on now to your second bookshelfie book, Caroline, which is Flight Behaviour by Barbara Kingsolver. Written by Women's Prize winning author Barbara Kingsolver, Flight Behaviour follows the story of a young mother who comes across a hillside on her family farm covered in monarch butterflies, which haven't yet migrated south. Is this a miraculous message from God or a spectacular sign of climate change? She and an entomology expert, Ovid Byron, set out to discover the truth. What did you love about this book, Caroline?
1: Well, I just love the way that Barbara Kingsolver writes anyway. And it was a bit of a battle for me to decide whether to put this book on always my is. Uh, on There's my, always a battle. <laughs> or, uh, or whether to put the Poisonwood Bible, which is um, an early book from her, which I also absolutely love. It's um, yes. a, a book about it family in the Belgian Congo. Um, But this book I, I chose because I just think she does something that's incredibly difficult. And I think she does it incredibly well. And that is to have a book kind of with a message. I mean, it is a book about climate change and how we communicate about climate change. But it's also... A fantastically compelling, funny story about this young woman growing up in the Appalachians and living with her infuriating husband and trying to understand the science of climate change when this entomologist comes to her remote village because these monarch butterflies have been kind of pushed off course by by climate change and they've ended up basically in her backyard. And it's just written with such precision and beauty. Can I can I quote another little bit? It's the very opening words. I'm a huge fan um, of quotes being sprinkled in, so oh, yes, yes, please. Well, the opening lines of, um, of, of flight behaviour are, are, are these. A certain feeling comes from throwing your good life away, and it is one part rapture, or so it seemed for now, to a woman with flame-coloured hair who marched uphill to meet her demise. Innocence was no part of this. She knew her own recklessness and marvelled really at how one hard little flint of thrill could outweigh the pillowy, suffocating aftermath of a long disgrace. Wow. I mean, wow. That's an opening paragraph in you. It's uh, It was just extraordinary. And, um, and that issue about how to communicate about climate change is something that I, that I literally lie awake um, worrying about and thinking about and... And I think she just does a fantastic job with this book because I think it will reach people for whom, you know, the climate emergency is not something that's necessarily on the top of their agenda and they might not be thinking about it much at all. And yet, it's not a it's not a depressing book at all. It's a it's a marvelously uplifting and funny book. Um, but it gets to the heart of some of the debates about why is it, in the wonderful words of of Pete Postlethwaite from a film called The The Age of Stupid, why is it, knowing what we know now we didn't act when we still had time and frankly to me that is the most important question that is what gets me up in the morning is just thinking we are heading right now for climate catastrophe we know it we don't lack the science we don't lack the technology we don't lack the finance what we lack is the political will and what is it that's going to mobilize our political leaders to take action before we've actually gone over the edge and, um, and I think those big questions are tackled in this book in the, in the, in the lightest, uh, most, most
0: elegant way. Through its lightness, through its elegance, through its wit, humour and beauty, part of flight behaviour success is how accessible it makes the subject of climate change. And like you have just said, a big question. Um, how do you make climate change accessible to the wider population?
1: Well, I think there's a an object lesson kind of unrolling right now in a sense with this cost of living. Crisis, cost of living, living scandal—I prefer to call it—in the sense that the government has been exacerbating it rather than alleviating it. But to the extent that so many of the policies that we need to address the climate crisis are also policies that are going to make life better, in other words, why don't we insulate everyone's homes so that they are not shivering in the 21st century, dying of, of fuel poverty in the 21st century? Why hasn't that been at the centre of the government's approach to the climate crisis, to the gas prices, to the to high energy prices? You know, that would be the most most effective, quickest way of getting people's fuel bills down and getting climate emissions down. So I think I think part of this is about how do you how do you identify those areas which are going to make people's lives better? as well as addressing the climate crisis, rather than framing the whole climate debate as some kind of debate about what we have to give up. It is all about shivering around a, a candle in a cave with hair shirts. You know, this is not what it's about and it's not a compelling vision when people talk about it that way. This is fundamentally about how do we live mm. better in, 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 on on this precious planet that we have and and addressing the climate crisis really gives us a once in a, in, in a, in a, in a lifetime opportunity to, to address that wider question about how we live well on a finite planet.
0: I always say the the climate crisis is a human rights crisis. As a human rights activist, it's so intertwined because those who will be affected um, disproportionately are those from uh, backgrounds who have less. It is not fair. And, and getting that message across, I think, is so important. I'd like to ask, actually, are... Feminism and the principles of the Green Party intertwined, do you feel?
1: Absolutely. And actually, going back to Petra Kelly, that was one of the things that attracted me to her most of all. She's extremely explicit about feminism, about how we need to challenge the kind of patriarchal mindset, and that goes from everything through from from discrimination against women, through to through to an attitude of power, um whether that's power over women or power over nature. And she really draws out those parallels incredibly clearly in that in that book, Fighting for Hope. And and to me, feminism and equality and social justice uh, and and racial justice are absolutely intrinsic to green politics. Yes. In the past, you've been
0: arrested at an anti-fracking process, which you must be pleased, um, seems to be off the government's policy menu for now. But what do you think of the new right to protest laws?
1: I am terrified mm-hmm. by the new um, the new clampdown on on stopping people from being able to protest. And I don't think we should be under any illusion about how serious they are. Um, it's part of a whole suite of policies that the government is bringing in, whether that's making it more difficult for people to vote through the requirements now to have more ID before you can go and vote. Um, the, the crackdown, as you say, on protest, the crackdown on judicial review, Um, It feels as if our freedoms are being taken away on a daily basis. And I don't think that as a whole, we've kind of woken up to that yet. I think there's kind of a sense that we don't do things like that in Britain or, you know, we've won our freedoms and therefore they won't be taken away again. The idea that you have to battle for democracy on a daily basis is something I think that we haven't fully understood yet. And we need to understand it really fast because because the right to peaceful protest has been at the heart of so many of the democratic wins that we've had, whether that's been about the suffragettes or whether it's been what happened in uh, the anti-apartheid movements or, or anti-slavery. I mean, the right to peaceful protest is an intrinsic part of our democracy. It's an intrinsic part of, of green politics, too. And and that arrest in, in Bolkham around fracking you know, I feel was was entirely legitimate, I should add, as well i was I was um taken to court and acquitted, which is an important part of yes. the story. Um, <laughs> but people being willing to put their bodies where their beliefs are um, I, I, I think is massively important, and we should be defending that right.
0: Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Looking for a treat to pair with your favourite book? Bailey's is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee. Your third bookshelfy book is Donut Economics by Kate Raworth. Shrewd, radical, and rigorously argued, Oxford academic Kate Rayworth's book takes us through seven critical ways in which modern economics has led us astray. And in the process, she creates a new cutting-edge economic model that is fit for the 21st century. When did you first read this book? Why have you picked it?
1: Well, I picked it because I suppose it goes back to my obsession about how do we communicate, about about climate, about economics. Uh, in a way that's more meaningful, perhaps than than we have to date. And the um, the kind of epigram in, in in Kate's book, she says the most powerful tool in economics is not money, not even algebra. It's a pencil, because with a pencil you can redraw the world. And I think what she's getting at there is that for as long as we think of the economy as a kind of a linear thing where you dig resources out of the earth on. You know, on one side of the planet, you transport them to another bit of the planet, you use them, you chuck them away and then they get taken away and, and, and you know, another hole is dug in another bit of the planet to, to bury them in. as long as that's our view of linear economics and as long as we are obsessed with thinking that that process has to speed up and speed up because we need more and more economic growth, that, then if that's how we see things, then we really are um on a highway to hell, to, uh, to quote the uh, UN Secretary General, and and what donut economics is about—it's a it's a funny title—but essentially, it's about drawing a different picture of the economy, having a circular economy in your head, and basically, the donut is kind of like two concentric rings, and the idea is that the the inner ring—the idea is to make sure people don't fall below that. In other words, we need a basic amount of. Of food and protection and shelter and literacy and all of those kind of social foundations that we need. But the outer ring of the donut kind of relates to um, the the critical ecological ceiling. In other words, there's a, a, a planetary boundary, whether it comes to climate change or biodiversity or anything else, which we mustn't exceed. And so living between those two rings of the donut is where we can live and thrive, all of us together, north and south. So it's just about what I like about it is it's about a different way of seeing the world. It's about telling different stories about the world. And it does seem to me that that is going to be so vital in the, in the shift that we need to make, that, you know, you can write as many, as many very, uh, very worthy textbooks as you like or leaflets or whatever. But unless, unless we tell stories, unless we have different images in our mind, then I don't think we're going to be able to shift quick enough to, to a different way of, of being in the world.
0: This book makes so clear why infinite growth on a finite planet is neither possible nor desirable. If you could implement just one idea from this book, I'm sure there are many in the UK tomorrow, what would it be?
1: Well, actually, I think what I would do is to to get economics taught differently at school and at universities, because that is the thing that would be transformative, that yes, we could introduce one policy, but then you might have a different government come in and they might overturn that policy and and so forth. Whereas if we could actually think differently about the economy from the very start, then I think we might have the chance of a more sustainable change. So I would love to see donor economics taught at every economics course, you know, in colleges and universities, so that people can, can understand that, in the 21st century, we need a different economic model, not the one that we've been using for several centuries, which has now been patently shown to be to be hugely destructive to the environment and not even delivering in its own terms for for people north and south. We know that there are still billions of people living in massive poverty. And yet somehow we think that just accelerating the same model is going to solve the problem. Well, there's that famous saying that doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result <laughs> You know, is a definition of an insanity and it's and it's clearly not working. So I think if we could teach economics differently, then we might just have a better chance of, of people understanding that that we need that circular economy. We can't just think that we need to grow our way out of out of difficulty. We we need a in the words of, of Kate Rayworth, we we need to have an economy. Um, that that makes us thrive, whether or not it grows, rather than the current obsession with more and more growth, whether or not it makes us thrive. It almost feels like there's such an obsession with GDP growth, the growth of, of, of gross domestic product. We never actually think about why we're doing it and are people benefiting from it. And we've got to a point now where that very model of growth is destroying the planet and undermining the lives and livelihoods of people right around the world.
0: Do you think Rishi Sunak has read Donut Economics?
1: I would be very surprised if Rishi Sinak had read it, but maybe that's my policy. Maybe I'll go and deliver him a copy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A gift for you, Rishi. Um, What do you think is the, the role of the Green Party in the next 10 years
1: of UK policy? Oh, well, God, I mean, we just we need to be the government. I mean, we really do. We're not messing about here. When I was first elected in 2010, I must admit, I thought that there would be more Green MPs by now, even though we have such a horrible electoral system that makes it so difficult for smaller parties. You know, there are Greens in not just parliaments, but in governments in the rest of Europe, around the world. And the reason that it's not happened here in the UK is essentially down to this first-past-the-post voting system that makes it so hard for smaller parties. But if we're serious about our analysis, about the urgency of... Of addressing um, climate and nature crises, then then absolutely, Greens need to be in power. So I'm not quite sure how it's going to happen. We're going to keep um, banging away. We're getting lots of local successes at local council level. Obviously, we're hopeful of getting more green, Greens elected in uh, in the next general election. Um, and 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 simply by being in the room, we can we can shift the policies of the other parties. They know that when there are Greens in the room, they have to up their game on green policies. So that's That's useful, but it's not enough. We absolutely need to get more Greens in positions of power.
0: If we were to see um, a Labour government, um, perhaps at the next general election, do you see a more natural environmental partner in them over the Conservatives?
1: I think it would be very hard to imagine a party that could be worse right now for the environment, the Conservatives. You know, they are going ahead with new coal mines. They are going ahead with licensing 100 new oil and gas licenses in the North Sea. I mean, this is just madness. So so yes, certainly I think the Labour Party would be better than that. I think, my. My my challenge to Labour would be to look at their economic policies as well as their environment policies, because going back to the debate about donor economics, I'm not sure that Labour signs up to to the kind of economics that Kate Rayworth's talking about. Unless we have that kind of economics, though, you can have as many green policies as you like bolted on to business as usual, but it's not going to work if you're so obsessed by more and more economic growth that actually any environmental benefit you gain is then undermined and outweighed by a very damaging model of growth.
0: So perhaps we need to be pressing donor economics into the hands of Keir Starmer as well, as Rishi Sinek. I think, we do. I think we do. Your fourth book, Caroline, is With the End in Mind by Catherine Mannix. In this touching, wise and funny book, palliative medicine pioneer Dr Catherine Mannix explores the biggest taboo in our society, death. Using nearly four decades of clinical practice, her book answers the most intimate and searching questions about the process of dying. Tell us why you chose
1: this. Well, this is a bit of a a change of gear. Mm, (laughs) Um, Yes. And um, yeah, I just think um, that as a society, we're not very clever when it comes to dealing with death. And I'm really fascinated by this. Um, And I think Catherine Mannix has such compassion and wisdom when she talks about it she is someone who's spent 40 years working in cancer management and palliative care and she's on a mission really to reclaim lost wisdom about dying you know she will say that death isn't a a medical event by and large obviously sometimes it is but it's not a medical event it's it's much more often a social and deeply personal event and in previous centuries it wasn't hidden behind institutional walls. You know, before this century, there would scarcely have been anyone who hadn't seen friends or family die. But today we can hardly even bear to say the D word. You know, we have a whole set of different euphemisms to, to use. And so to me, this book is so important on a very kind of personal level in a way, because I, I think if one considers how how we want to die well, then that also raises big questions about how to live well as well. And and having those thoughts now when there's still time to potentially change the way we do things rather than having those thoughts on our own deathbeds feels quite important. Um, So this book is about the stories of the the patients that she's worked with, how they've faced death, how she's helped to make it much less scary. And they are um, sometimes heart wrenching, but they're also sometimes funny and and compassionate and and they just get to the heart really of of h- how we can accompany one another um, at that point of, of death. That feels to me massively important. It's such a compassionate book, tackling
0: those taboos that we've just mentioned um, and also making the case that it's a conversation we should all have. It's also about living well, you know, because that's so fundamental to dying well many people come to catherine's work when they're experiencing or about to experience grief did this book help you in some way
1: yes i I, um my mother died uh, uh last year and my dad died a couple of years before that and yes definitely it helped me to um well to have conversations actually before my mother died which felt important you know so often so often people have regrets because they didn't have conversations because they didn't quite know how to have those conversations with someone who's dying. You know, it's almost as if we're scared of of acknowledging that a loved one is dying because we somehow think that if we acknowledge it, it'll suddenly come as news to them. Whereas quite often they are well aware of the fact that they're dying. And actually, it would be probably quite a relief to be able to, to talk about it rather than having to put on the, a brave face. So learning how to have those conversations, having the confidence to have those conversations, I think is is so important. And and I think Catherine just just is such a brilliant teacher when it comes to that.
0: I'm really sorry for your loss, um, last year, uh, Caroline. Thank you. What did you take from the book then? What what do you think needs to perhaps change about the way that Western society handles
1: the end of life? Well, I just think we need to start talking about it would be a start and to stop thinking about it as such an entirely medical, medicalized mm. event, bringing death back into the community when that's appropriate. And of course, I understand there'll be times when that's absolutely not possible or appropriate. But so many people coming towards the end of their lives would would, would, would choose if they could to live, at, to, to, to die at home. And yet that's that's quite hard. Um so actually, one of the things I took from this was, was to sign up to an organisation called Living Well, Dying Well. It's based in Lewis, just outside Brighton. And they train people to become what they call death doulas, people who are who are prepared to walk alongside people who are dying and the families of those who are dying, and, and to be a kind of witness and a support, a practical help, hopefully an emotional help of some sort too. And it feels to me that bringing... The whole dying process, to the extent possible, back into the community, and and being with one another through that process, is something that would both make the dying process less painful and less scary, but also has the potential to open our eyes to a whole, you know, a whole way of of really appreciating the preciousness of life while we have it. it. It's so easy, isn't it, to go through life kind of running from one crisis to the next without. Without realizing that that we're here for a very short time, and um, and and making the most of this precious life is something that that is 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 something that's good to remember. I think it's a mantra to live by.
0: We move on now to your fifth and final book, which is Devotions: Collected Poems by Mary Oliver, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet. Mary Oliver presents a personal selection of her best work in this definitive collection spanning more than five decades of her esteemed literary career. I love that we're finishing on this note. I love how uplifting it
1: can be to read Mary Oliver's poetry. Why did you pick it? For those very reasons. um, I mean, I just think they are so uplifting and, and it does relate back to the conversation we were just having really about, about life and, and recognizing how precious it is. And for me, Mary Oliver is just a reminder to kind of slow down a bit. Mm. You know, sometimes she just talks about the importance of, of just paying attention. And I find that very helpful because I am prone to dashing from one thing to the next thing and not paying attention. Um, and I've now got much more involved in the kind of mindfulness movement too, which personally I find helpful just to have more of a of a grounding. Um, but in for, for me, these poems are kind of mindfulness in, in action, <laughs> um, mindfulness in literature, if you like. I, mean, I don't know if I'm pushing my luck to see if I could actually read one of them. Have we got time for that?
0: Yes, I
1: love that we're that's having right. a
0: poem read. Yes, I don't think we've yeah. had that yet on the podcast. So I'm very happy. I love Mary Oliver so much.
1: OK, well, that's great. And in a sense, if I read the poem, then I don't really need to explain why I love it. Hopefully <laughs> it'll just be... Obvious.
0: Yeah, I think so that's is- the thing about her is that it, it, it's so it's this very potent um, drop of serotonin that just via the most perfect word economy, everything makes perfect sense. And it's so vivid.
1: And um, so I feel like it will speak for itself. Oh, you put that so beautifully. I love that the drop of serotonin. <laughs> it's perfect. Exactly what it is. Um, and they're, And they're incredibly accessible. But as you say, I just think they make, well, they make me anyway, just kind of stop in my tracks. So this is the summer day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper, this grasshopper I mean, the one who's flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who's gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away.
0: Mary Oliver is loved by readers for this beautifully raw observation of the natural world. So often, it's about the natural world. Is this a, a reason that you're drawn to her poetry?
1: I think so, absolutely. As you, as you say, there's there's that detail. You know, that bit about the grasshopper. She doesn't just say any grasshopper; mm-hmm. it's this particular one <laughs> on her hand, now, moving its jaws in a kind of strange way. That way of really um, noticing. <laughs> paying attention to to the nature all around us, whether that's animals or plants or, or anything else, uh, I, I find really very special, very beautiful. I love um, having
0: a poetry book in my bag at all times because I feel like more so than a novel, you get this short, sharp dose of beauty that you can find even in the darkest places. And... I feel like that level of description, it helps you to see even even in the most mundane, everyday scene, just a little hint of, of light, um, which is exactly what you've just done with that poem. Are there any of your fellow politicians that you feel could benefit from reading a little bit of Mary Oliver?
1: Well, I mean, to be fair, I think all of us could, <laughs> just because I think just so nourishing for our soul it is soul food and 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 who doesn't need a bit of that but I I just want to say I really agree with what you just said about about having a bit of poetry in your in your in your bag and I love the poems on the tube when they did that yeah they do. the tube and you're you know you're just really not feeling in in the mood for poetry at all but then suddenly your eye kind of catches it and it transforms the moment that you're standing there. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It
0: transforms the moment that you're standing
1: there because you're not seeking it out. It's such a lovely surprise
0: every time you sit on the tube. And let's face it, often you're on the tube. You've got an armpit in your face. It stinks. You're hot. You're sweaty. I'm usually lugging loads of bags around. I'm uncomfortable. And as soon as I catch just a, a glimmer of, of one of those poems, I, you turn to look at it and it changes the moment entirely. I could not agree more. Caroline, the UK is facing a a challenging time for lots of people right now. Um, The cost of living, um, the NHS strikes. What can we feel optimistic about? What gives you hope in challenging times? I think what
1: gives me hope um, are are our fellow human beings who who are doing so much against the odds to... To fight for this better world. I mean, it's it's all around us, isn't it? Um, those lovely words from Arundhati Roy about another world is not only possible, but she's on her way. And on a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. I love that. And, you know, I don't want to keep talking about young people because I feel sometimes, you know, older generations like myself put such a pressure on young people by saying, oh, they're amazing. And they're, you know, they're, they're going to save the world for us. You know, they, they have a right to just have a good youth without having to worry about saving the world but there are so many young people particularly young people from from the global south who are just doing so much now to to wake up politicians and political leaders and each other and mobilizing and 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 just not taking no for, a, for an answer so that does give me hope although i'm sorry that you know in the words of greta thunberg they they should be at school and so forth not having to to worry about saving the planet They should be
0: at school reading Donut Economics.
1: Yes. Um, My final
0: question to you today, Caroline, is if you had to choose one book from your list as a favourite, which one would it be and why?
1: Oh, I didn't know you were going to do that. I should have thought of that. (laughs) Sorry, Um, sorry, sorry. I suppose for the reasons we've just been discussing, it would have to be Mary Oliver. Um, There's just, just everything in there in a way I don't think you would ever get tired of rereading it because if I've, if I've just got one book I'm going to be rereading it an awful lot um, and I think the Mary Oliver does just bear that rereading and each time you read it you see something slightly different in it so I would be delighted to have that one. Absolutely beautiful. Caroline thank you
0: so so much for your time for your wisdom for your words and for sharing with us and here's to a brighter greener future. Thank you. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Bailey's and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.